Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to The Fizzle Show. I'm your host, Corbett Barr, and this is our show about earning a living independently, doing something you really care about. And I am super excited today because we have a very special guest. Thomas Frank is founder of collegeinfogeek.com. He's the host of the College Info Geek podcast. He's also the host of his YouTube channel at Thomas Frank, where over 1.6 million subscribers tune in for Thomas's tips on being more productive. Thomas, thank you so much for being here today. Hello. Thank you for having me on the show. It's been a dream of mine. I'm really glad to, to have you here. It's, it's been a while. We, um, we've had the luxury of seeing each other in person a few times in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in, in Portland a couple of times. I was trying to think back when we first met. I feel like it may have been at a um, conference. The first time we met in person, I think, did you go to Podcast Movement, the very first one? Because I know Chase was there. I went to, um, no, I went to a, there was something else that was about blogging and podcasting um, in New York City once. It was like Blog, blog world. world. Yes. Yep. That Were was you at blog that world. one? Okay. So yeah, I think that was the first time we ever met. Yep. I was there with uh, Alex Mangini. Nice. Uh, when was that? That was like maybe six was- or seven years ago? That, yeah, that was uh, June 2012, and I remember this because I turned 21 on the plane ride to Blog World. <laughs> okay. But because Alex Mangini is so young, we didn't drink at all. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so oh, the joys all of, of my birthday 21. shenanigans had to wait like yeah. three weeks. <laughs> totally. Um, okay, so back in 2012, you were already going to conferences. Did you have a blog or a podcast mm-hmm. or something at the time? Yeah, College Info Geek started in 2010. Uh, and if you'll remember, actually won the million dollar bar- blog project. That's right. Wow. That's, that's going way back when. <laughs> way back to the think traffic days. Yes. Yeah. So I started in 2010 and, uh, it's, it's kind of one of those, if you can't join them, beat them stories. So I, I joined, uh, college, I guess I, people don't say they joined college. They went to college and I was reading life hacker. I was reading all the tech blogs because I wanted to be an it guy. This was my dream, actually. I did not think in a million years I was going to be a YouTuber and essentially speak for a living. In fact, my parents used to make fun of me for having a mush mouth in uh, my childhood, and they would joke like, oh, ha, ha, let's see. It would be funny if Tom grew up to be a sports announcer or something like that. <laughs> that so, stuck with you because you're basically like a, like a newscaster <laughs> these days. <laughs> jokes on them. Yeah, he slides into first. Um, so I was reading all these blogs because I wanted to do well in college. And this was right after the 2008 stock market crash. So I was sort of insulated from the effects of it because I was still in in high school when it happened, actually. And I was going off to college. But I remember myself and a lot of people my age being worried that all those effects were going to carry on throughout the four years we were in college and we were going to go into an incredibly tough job market. Yeah, it was Uh, scary. You know, people graduating college that year, they were freaking out as they, you know, kind of had to. Everyone was freaked out, right? And they were graduating into a horrible job market. And we thought the same thing was going to happen. So my mindset there was I have to be as competitive as possible because everyone else is going to also be as competitive as possible. And uh, this led me to spend as much of my free time as I could reading Life Hacker, reading you know how to be more productive and uh, also getting into my, my field. And I came across this blog called Hack College, which was essentially Life Hacker for college students written by college students. And at the end of my freshman year, they put out this post saying, hey, our founders are graduating college. This is for students, by students. So they're getting the boot. We need new writers. Apply if you want to. And I was thinking, hey, that would actually be a pretty cool resume booster to say that I wrote for this big tech blog or this, or this big uh, college hacks blog. 
And so I applied. I spent all night writing this guest post that I thought was perfect. Little did I know it was pretty amateurish, but hey, you know, such are the <laughs> trials and tribulations of beginner bloggers. And they rejected it. You know, it was a very polite rejection letter, but I guess they got a bunch of applications and mine didn't make the cut. But I was kind of miffed because I had spent all this time writing this guest post that was going to be published if I had gotten the job. And I didn't want it to go to waste. So I remember having gone through the five minute, like the famous five minute WordPress installation a little while before uh, because I had set up like a little journal style blog for college. And I, I think it was like journaling my uh, my quest to try to get into every building on campus because Iowa <laughs> State has like 178 buildings or some insane number like that. Where did you go to school? Uh, Iowa State University. Okay. And so I knew how to build WordPress sites very basic WordPress sites, free theme, didn't look good, but I was like, all right, I can put this blog post on the internet. I'm going to start my own blog. And I remember writing out a bunch of names thinking, I think college beat would be the coolest one. Cause it'll be like college news, something like that. Uh, that was taken. So in, uh, just like a fit of hurriedness, I was like, college info geek because i'm a management information systems major so maybe it'll be like kind of mis and it themed and that kind of has been our name forever even <laughs> though i don't necessarily think it's the best name but hey it's it's a name but it's the name now <laughs> I, I wonder how many business owners out there feel that way like oh i'm stuck with this name that i came up with in a hurry but but mm -hmm. on the other hand it's like does a name really matter that much as long as people remember it I really don't think it matters to the point where when I got to filing for my LLC a few years ago, I just chose business things and whatnot LLC. I'm like, <laughs> hey, I want it to be flexible. Uh, and That's it's always funny. a good conversation starter. My lawyer thought it was hilarious. So <laughs> that was 2010. And, <laughs> and I, I luckily saved like a bunch of Facebook conversations that I talked with friends about it. Um, so sometimes I can go back and see, you know, my thoughts at the time thinking like, what did I actually want out of this? Um, and at the beginning, it really was just, I wanted to share what I was doing. I wanted to share what I was uh, learning for being a better, more efficient college student. And I also thought it would be a great resume booster. I eventually brought on a partner. He was obsessed with Android and Linux. So the blog became half Android and Linux content for a very long time. Uh, and then my, my side was more general. And I think about a year in, a couple of things happened. Number one, I discovered Think Traffic along with Smart Passive Income. Uh, and I think it was like Viper Chill was another one yeah. of the ones back yeah, in the Glenn day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Glenn Mm-hmm. So I was reading all you guys and started thinking, hey, maybe I could make this into something more. Maybe I could like make it a side income. Maybe it could be, you know, kind of a bigger blog. I don't know. And then I wrote a post that was kind of just for fun. I tried to hang a desk off of my loft bed because I wanted all the floor space that I could get. And I, I just blogged my entire process for it. It was not good craftsmanship at all, but it worked. The desk or the blog post? <laughs> the, the desk. I think okay. the blog post was actually pretty decent. Uh, and then Hat College did one of those little snippet share things where they made a post just kind of like linking to my post. And then Lifehacker did it to theirs. And that brought in a bunch of traffic. So that was kind of the catalyst event that put College Info Geek on the map. And once that happened, I was like, all right, let's do this. Let's spend as much time as possible not sleeping and writing as many blog posts as I can. I had an internship that summer. Uh, and it, boy, the timing was actually pretty awesome because the internship taught me that, no, Tom, you don't like IT, actually. Uh, and it's different than you think it's going to be because it's a lot of cubicle work. Yep. Uh, and more importantly, it's a lot of maintenance work. 
So I've learned that I like to be creative, I like to build things from the ground up, and I don't actually like to maintain things that have been set up by other people. And at the same time, the blog was starting to gain traction, so I had this outlet to pursue like a new passion at the same time. And, and this was your was senior kind of year of college at the time? That was my, um, let's see here. It started after my freshman year ended. Okay. So I kind of ran the blog throughout the entirety of college. And by the time I got to my senior year, it had reached full-time income. I think it was like November of my senior year. I got to the point where I'm like, all my bills are paid, which was cool because I really wasn't sure what, what I wanted to do. I had done the IT internship. I didn't like it. And I really wasn't sure where to go. So I had this rough plan to move to Minneapolis and maybe try to get a web development job since at least coding is creative. Uh, and a couple of things happened. Number one, the blog hit full-time income. And two, I met a girl who was two years my junior. So to stay with her required staying in Iowa. So I'm like, all right, let's do the entrepreneur thing. Let's stay here for at least another two years while she graduates and finishes school. And I'll just run this as best as I can. And did, did, um, doing it. your friends and, and, um, classmates think you were crazy for spending all this time on the blog? I had a girlfriend before my current girlfriend who I don't think she thought I was crazy, but she was like, I don't know if that's going to work out. You need to, I think it was more like I wasn't putting my all into my grades anymore. Yeah. And I, I told her, you know, in those uncertain terms, like my grades don't matter to me as much anymore. I'm not going to fail college, but I'm certainly not going to spend a zillion years studying. And she got mad at me. She's like, you know, you need to take your, you need to take your grades more seriously. This blog doesn't matter as much. And, uh, I think honestly, and this isn't to butter you up, but honestly, it was like reading Think Traffic, reading SPI. Uh, I kind of came to this kind of clear-headed realization that in the direction I wanted to go, nobody was going to care about my grades. You know, they might, you know, in the future, if it all blew up and everything and I needed to go get a real job, quote unquote, they might care about like the signaling value of my degree, but in the direction I really wanted to go, no one was going to care about my grades. So... I contented myself with getting B's, A minuses, stuff like that for my last couple of years of college. And I spent more time on the blog. Um, well, the rest of my friends would just make fun of me just because that's <laughs> what they're like. <laughs> and obvi obviously, you know, from a, from a career standpoint, monetary standpoint, it's, it's all worked out fine. But I would also say that from a, um, intellect standpoint, you, you on your, in your YouTube videos, they they seem to be very well researched. Uh, you always have, you know, links and, and examples and things that kind of back up what you're talking about. And they just are well-formed arguments. And they, they, it seems like the kind of stuff that you would learn how to do writing college research papers or something. Uh, yeah. and so even if you were slacking off, then it, it still stuck with you in some way because, because you know that that's important backing up what you're saying, right? Mm -hmm. I do kind of laugh at that, how like I'm out of school now, but my job is essentially to write a research paper every week. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I think uh, in particular, the video I did on binaural beats and brain enhancing music, I did more research for that than I've done for any school project I ever did. I mean, I was interviewing neuroscientists and tearing my hair out because I couldn't understand like p-values in uh, research statistics. Papers. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I was like, you know, I, I'm trying to come to a conclusion here, but I, I feel like this is above my pedigree. So yeah, it's almost been like a, another college experience, except for I get paid for this one. When did you uh, publish your first YouTube? And was this part of your strategy for College Info Geek or, or how did you decide to start doing it in earnest? Um... Uh, the, the YouTube channel is, I would say, 
inspired by Chase and you guys. Really? <laughs> it was an accident, yeah. So my, my YouTube channel itself has existed since 2006. Um, and at the time, it was just my brother and I as kids posting very dumb videos. We, we were trying to make a movie about ninjas in the snow one time. And that I think that's why we had our YouTube channel. And then it just was very dormant for most of college. And I remember, so I was a Fizzle member and I was also reading the Fizzle blog a lot. And I remember Chase posting a blog post that had like a three minute snippet of one of your courses. I think it was like Chase's productivity course. And there was a little blurb like, hey, we're gonna try something new. We just wanna try spicing up our blog post content with YouTube or like a video. So we're not really trying to become YouTubers, but you know, it's a good place to host them. And I was like, that's a smart idea. I already had a podcast. I already had the blog posts. I'm like, well, why don't I just make a video, use YouTube as a hosting platform because I can't really afford Wistia. And I was, I was like very convinced that Wistia would have been the best option because Wistia <laughs> had better analytics at the time. There was heat maps and tracking for how long people watched and you could make uh, the screen clickable for a uh, call to action. I was like, yep. well, duh, that would be much better than YouTube where you got to put stuff in the description. Why would I want to do that? But I didn't want to pay for uh, Wistia because it's expensive. So I just put it on YouTube. I'm like, eh, I'll just use my channel as a dumping ground slash hosting account. And the first experience making a video, I almost started a fire in my room because I did not know anything about video lighting and tried to cobble together lights out of flammable materials. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> and then they started but, smoking. Yeah. Uh, I went to Home Depot and I bought one of those halogen shop lights that gets pretty hot. Pretty hot. Didn't, I didn't know it got hot because I'd never used them before. And then to make a softbox, I didn't know how to make a softbox. So I went to Target and I bought like this hamper that was made out of cardboard wrapped in fabric. Oh my and God. And I put a bed sheet in front of it thinking, oh, hey, softbox, I'm a DIY hacker. Check me out. And then smoke. So luckily I didn't burn my apartment <laughs> building down, but learned my lesson. And then. Uh, so luckily, luckily you ended up on YouTube. Luckily you didn't <laughs> burn your apartment down. There's just a yeah. series of fortunate events. Series of fortunate events. Yeah. And then, and then uh, a friend from Des Moines was like, hey, Wistia has this whole library of videos on how to get started and build these DIY lights that won't burn your house down. So, you know, for anyone who wants to know, it's just like those little dish shop lights from Home Depot. You can put LED light bulbs in them and then just cover them with wax paper, which is built to go in the oven. And then you're good to go. So that's what I used for a long time. And um, my tutorial on Fizzle shows those lights. Uh, now I've got some little, little more expensive gear, but it worked in the little beginning. A little bit, but it's amazing the quality of of inexpensive gear these days. Just stuff yeah. on Amazon. Those LED light panels have changed the the, the game for, for me, not yeah. having to have these giant soft boxes. There's no heat that comes off of them. You can mm -hmm. dial them up or dial them back. It's it's really nice. Yeah, they're, they're amazing. Like and you can get some that are, uh, they're, they're, there's built-in diffusion. Really? So I've got one that you don't even need to put anything in front of it. It's just, it's really nicely diffused it isn't the nicest light i own but in a pinch it works really well and you know what people have to learn is that the the fundamentals and the techniques are actually more important than the gear so knowing where to position your lights the temperature of lights that hit your face versus the temperature of lights in the background uh, or just knowing how to use sunlight properly because you can position yourself next to a window at the right angle and get a really nice image without needing any artificial light whatsoever so for all that stuff a lot of technique to learn 
did, did, do you remember studying that stuff in earnest? Um, was it more trial and error and how much did the quality of your videos matter? Because I, I went back and looked at like your, your older videos and obviously there's a couple of really old ones in there, but, um, from the time that you decided to like start taking it seriously, there were only a couple of videos that had like different sort of quality. And then it seemed like you got up to speed really quickly. How did you yeah. make that work? Uh, so I had a couple of different things. I will say that 90% of it was trial and error and reading every scrap of information I could get my hands on, you know, digging through esoteric forums on like acoustic panel reviews and all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, but my unfair advantages are two. First, again, I had Pat, you guys, and neither of you were really talking too much about video, but you had at least done a few videos and uh, they were done with more expensive cameras but I was able to just kind of observe how you did things like um, in the physical courses. Like I was, I was like, okay, so it looks like there's lighting in the background of some sort hitting the bookshelf back there. And it looks like they're kind of framing this way. And like, there's this much room between the top of the screen and Corbett's head. Okay. So that's kind of where I want to be on camera. So one of it was just being very, very observant uh, to the point where I made playlists full of videos on YouTube just because I liked the way they looked. And then another thing is, I think it was like a year before I started YouTube, I had spoken at this event called Ignite, which is uh, something that happens all around the world, actually. And you can give a five-minute presentation where you have 20 PowerPoint slides and they have to auto-advance every 15 seconds. Whoa. Anybody can sign up to do this. So I used those events as a way to get some public speaking experience. But I also wanted the, the replay online. I wanted to be able to link to it on my, my uh, personal website. So I emailed the department on campus that had put that on. I was like, hey guys, I noticed that it's been like three months and those videos from the Ignite event aren't online yet. Is there any help you need? I don't know how to edit videos very well, but I used Windows Movie Maker when I was a kid. I'd be willing to learn and help out. And they got back to me and they were like, well, actually we just finished those. They're going up this week, but we have this whole summer engineering internship program that we're running here. And we need a crew to make essentially like an advertisement slash documentary for it to entice the next year's group of candidates. And if you want to do it, we'll pay you like eight bucks an hour. And we've also got a guy who will sort of teach you the ropes. So he taught me how to do three point interview lighting. He taught me how to do lav mics and he taught me Final Cut Pro editing. And I don't use Final Cut Pro, but Final Cut Pro at least is similar to Premiere in that it's, you know, multi-track editing. Uh, so if you know Final Cut Pro, the the basics of switching to Premiere are not that hard to learn. So that was sort of my kickstart. But from there, it was just uh, the 1% rule where in every video I looked for one element that I could improve. And then that in combination with putting myself on a deadline to get a video out every single week resulted in just a steady increase in quality right off the bat. Because yeah, the, the first video that I consider the first is that four-step process to have a more productive day. Mm -hmm. um, that was completely off the top of my head, no scripting, and the microphone is like a Blue Yeti microphone over here. And then like the next video, I learned that, oh, the proximity of the microphone to your mouth is very important. So I framed it a little tighter so I could have the microphone just a bit closer to my mouth. And then the next video, I learned some animation techniques and so on and so forth. And um, did you... Did you set a once a week cadence from the beginning back then? And, and have you pretty much stuck to that? I haven't stuck to it, but yeah, from the beginning, there was a once a week cadence and that existed before the YouTube channel started. Um, so I graduated college 
and I was very fortunate in the fact that I had kind of hit upon a source of actually passive income. You know, I had a pretty well-performing affiliate on one of my blog posts. And so for the first, I would say year after I graduated, I kind of rested on my laurels a little bit. I was still blogging, but I really wasn't putting in the effort that I should have been putting in. Played a little bit too much Magic the Gathering. And, (laughs) (laughs) you know, nothing happened that really forced me to make a change. But I remember reading Nick Winter's book, The Motivation Hacker. Uh-huh. Um, it's not a very famous book. It's just the guy that uh, wrote that created the Scritter app. He also created, I think, Code Combat, which is a really cool app for learning how to code for kids. But he had this whole, I think it was like a year-long goal to achieve all these crazy things. And he was like, I'm just going to set you know big, hairy, audacious goals and build systems to make myself achieve them. And that book introduced me to the concept of being a professional, where, you know, the whole, like, Amateurs get inspired when, or the amateurs work when they get inspired. Professionals work on a schedule. So they, you could say they get inspired at 8 a.m. every day. And then there was also a tool that he talked about called B-Minder, where you can literally bet money that you will do things. Mm. And you can use things like RSS feeds or IFTTT or just manual data entry to kind of bet yourself that you will get things done or that you won't do bad habits and then you'll have to pay money. So in the book, he says, I set it up so that if I didn't write X number of words per day to finish my book, I would lose half of my wealth. And I think he had like 15 grand at the time. So it was a $7,000 bet. And then the other $7,000 was bet on, I would go skydiving by X date. Uh, I didn't bet $7,000 of my wealth, but I did set up B minor goals and I hooked it up to my WordPress RSS feed saying that I would get three things out per week, one podcast, one blog post, one video. And that was probably the first two years of the YouTube channel. Just, making sure I didn't lose my B-minder goal. And uh, in those two years, um, what sort of growth did you see in the in the channel? Let's see here. The first, I think first seven or eight videos, the growth was pretty slow. And I remember being a little disappointed because I already had my blog audience and I thought they would go over to the YouTube channel in droves and build my channel up. Uh, but they didn't as much as I thought they would. But I think it was my eighth video kind of went viral on Reddit. And within a day or two, I had gone from 200 subscribers up to, I think, 2,000. So that was another one of those uh, catalyst moments where, you know, you're kind of working for a while in stealth mode, and then all of a sudden things conspire to give you a big bump. And from there, it was kind of steadily increasing growth over time. I think the next big bump was doing a guest video for another big channel. And, you know, since then, it's been up and down. The um, the post that went sort of viral on Reddit, and and you have to imagine that the 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 impact that that had at the time uh, would be multiplied by so much if if you published that video now, right? It, and it had the same kind of impact. So even though you you gained eighteen hundred subscribers, uh, that was to you starting almost from scratch, which is pretty amazing. You know, you eight yeah. xed your subscribers or something from one video. Do you remember? Was there something about that video that stood out to you when you made it? Did you feel like Ah, uh, I'm on to something here. Mm-mm. <laughs> that video. Uh, so I can't remember where I read this, but I read an essay one time that also kind of went viral. And it was like a very old essay, like it went viral, viral in the 80s. But the author had said, you know, sometimes what you write strikes a chord. And you don't know what's going to happen, but it just does. So I think that this was one of those times. The video was a very short message about 
how not feeling like you want to do something doesn't actually restrict your ability to do it. So a lot of people be like, I don't feel like studying, but that doesn't actually make you unable to study. You can choose to do it. Now I did that video because I was, I was looming near my Friday deadline and I was trying to do a video on 80-20, which I still haven't done actually. Um, my script was huge and I realized like there is no way I'm gonna be able to film and edit this to my quality standards and to my 1% rule standards and get it out on Friday. So I stood in front of my camera and I was like, oh, I just don't feel like doing anything. All right, I'm gonna do a video on that. And I think it's like three and a half minutes, but yeah, it struck a chord, so. It's funny you say that because uh, the most popular blog post I've ever written uh, is one that doesn't end up meaning much for us as a business because it's not super related to building a business, but it's on motivation. Mm -hmm. And I wrote that blog post in a moment where I had no motivation. And basically, oh, really? basically I was yelling at my, I decided like, just like you, I have to publish something. I'm, I'm at my keyboard. I'm getting something out no matter what. And I, I sat there frustrated for like an hour trying to think of something to write and just not feeling like it. And finally, I just went with the flow and I said, screw it. I'm going to write about motivation. Almost mm -hmm. like I was yelling at myself about it, like just trying to psych myself up. And that post has had like millions and millions of, of um, views over the years. So it's funny, you know, and I, I had no idea that would become that popular. And I, I think I, I hear that commonly from people. The post that goes viral, the post that really connects with people, it's not necessarily one that they think is going to happen. So you just have to like take a lot of swings at the bat and eventually you're going to maybe hit a grand slam. Yeah. And that's right epic shit, right? Right epic shit as well. That wasn't the motivation post. Though. Oh, is that the other one? Yeah. No, that wasn't What's the one. the one? And that it's, it's called, um, need some motivation right now. Read this immediately is the title. <laughs> okay. And, uh, that's for a some pretty reason, good clickbait it, it title. It's just, and it's just uh, one of those that got picked up by the search engines. Gotcha. So okay. have you found, um, speaking of like going viral and speaking of uh, right epic shit versus this motivation post, have you found that there are some uh, posts or, or videos that reach a lot of people and that sometimes that's different from a post that hits home with a smaller number of people, but has like a greater impact? Do you have any that you feel like are really important, but not necessarily super popular? Yeah. Um, the one that comes to mind is one of my least popular videos. And it, it kind of has to do with that thing you just said about throwing things at the wall until something sticks. So there's something called the equal odds rule in science. And I can't remember who coined this, but it was born out of the observation that the scientists that have the most accolades, the most Nobel prizes, uh, and I think the observation actually came from looking at the scientists that have the most citations for their papers. Um, these are also the scientists and researchers that have published the greatest amount of papers. So it's not necessarily the fact that they are just mega geniuses who always, you know, drop golden eggs. It's that they have thrown as many things at the wall as possible. And as a result, uh, the, you know, the large number rule means that something is the cream that rises to the top. So I made a video about that. Um, that video bombed horribly. I didn't title it correctly. The thumbnail was terrible. I didn't know what I was doing back then. But uh, my friend Andrew, who is the Listen Money Matters founder, he consistently said, like, that's my favorite video you've ever made. And I've had a few people say, like, that's the best video you've ever made. And I'm like, it did terrible. But, you know, sometimes there's a small segment 
of people that it's going to reach and it's going to be a big game changer for them. And uh, to get off like so the sort of motivational aspect of it, even the video I put out yesterday, it was all about Notion, uh, this app that I use for project mm -hmm. management. That video is really in depth. So it might do well. I tried to optimize it as best as I could do well, but I was going into stuff like relational databases in Notion, like crazy concepts. It's not surface level stuff. So I don't think it's going to be a banger as Mr. Beast would call his videos, but I think that there's going to be a small group of people who see that and go, that's going to change my business because it changed my business. And uh, you just have to learn that there's going to be a mix of content like that. Because again, unless you're Mr. Beast, not every video can be a banger. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and if you want you every that. video to be a banger, you have to like buy out car dealerships or give out $20 million to people or whatever it is, you know? Hey, before we keep going, here's a quick message from Gusto. Small business owners wear a lot of hats. And while some hats are great, others like the filing taxes and running payroll hat, they're not so great. That's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, and managing a team actually easy for small businesses. Gusto automatically pays and files your federal, state, and local taxes, so you don't have to worry about it. Plus, they make it easy to add on health benefits and even 401ks for your team. Oh, and you can get direct access to certified HR experts, too. Sounds like a pretty good way to kick off 2020 for your business, right? But here's the thing. Deadlines for the new year, they creep up earlier than you think, and you're going to want to get started now. So don't wait. Let Gusto make it easier on you. As a bonus, listeners get three months free when they run their first payroll. This is one hat you're going to be glad you gave up. So try a demo and see for yourself over at gusto.com slash fizzle. That's gusto.com slash fizzle. In terms of uh, your your production now, um, how frequently are you publishing across blog, podcast, and, and videos? Uh, the podcast went down from every week to every other week recently, and the videos went from every week to right now we're at three a month. I'm working back up to four a month for the videos. And then the blog is really not my concern anymore. Um, I had a guy who started as a guest poster, actually, or started out as a commenter and reader, and has now become my head writer and also kind of like coach, co-business development chief. And he sort of manages the editorial calendar for the blog now. So I would say we're roughly two posts a week there. Um, but I don't have a whole lot of involvement in the blog anymore, which is kind of cool. And the reason that the schedule went down so much is because I hit a huge burnout peak or period uh, in about June, I would say. And... I know you've dealt with burnout as well. I don't know if, if you recognize the signs of it as late as I did, but in my case, um, you know, looking back on it, talking with my girlfriend, talking with friends, I realized that I had burned out probably eight months before I actually acknowledged that I was burned out. And um, I think it was, number one, it was hubris. It was pride. It was me saying, I'm the productivity guy. If anybody can keep up the schedule, it should be me. And if I don't do that, I'm literally threatening my own identity. Um, but the other part was I had hired people, you know, and now their livelihoods depended on my content schedule. So I never really even did the math. I was just like, I got to keep doing this. Otherwise, we're going to slow down. I'm going to have to fire people. Uh, but it got to a point where my girlfriend 
I, this, this will always stick with me. My girlfriend was like, I don't like how you, every time you talk about your work, it's negative now. I'm like, oh man, you're right. I haven't really had a, a time when I was like giddy or excited about a project. It always just feels overwhelming. Like, oh, I have so much to do. I can't do that. So I sat down with my business partner. We're like, all right, let's run the numbers. And luckily I've built like this spreadsheet where I can just plug what if numbers in and it will spit out a pretty accurate number immediately. Uh, so we're like, all right, what if we go down to two videos a month, two podcasts a month? And we're like, oh, wait, we're going to break even. We're not going to profit, you know, but we don't have to fire anyone, which is nice. So I did that. I talked with my agent who manages my sponsorships. And that was kind of another big thing. I didn't want to let them down, but yeah. they were super accommodating and they were super understanding of it. Um, and that was that was a huge, um, it, you know, it was a very, it was a very, very useful thing. I didn't realize just how much you can get locked into a cycle of negative thinking when you're doing too much. Because when I finally let back on the gas a bit, all the ideas came flooding back. And it's like, I'm passionate about my work again. And it was crazy. I felt like I never would feel it again. But when you're mired in that, and when you, when you see nothing but that in the future, you can start thinking and telling yourself like it's never going to end. And I guess I'm just, uh, you know, not excited anymore. I'm cynical now. When you um, first consciously recognized that you might be experiencing <clears throat> burnout, was there a long period of time where you wrestled with it and tried to fight it or ignore it? Um, or did you find the courage and give yourself permission to, to recognize it right away? Well, like I said, it was probably eight months or more of ignoring it, fighting it, yeah, uh, diluting myself. Mm. You know, especially when, when people would say that you're a thought leader in something, and especially when that thing is productivity and getting work done, it's very, very easy to just ignore those thoughts because, you know, your whole identity is kind of wrapped up in doing a lot of work. Yeah. So I didn't want to admit it to myself. And you also, it's interesting, earlier we talked about Sometimes when you don't feel like doing something, you need to do it anyway. And that's what being a professional is. Mm -hmm. But when that pendulum swings too far the other direction, sometimes you're not recognizing the symbol, the, the symptoms of like a major situation that you have to deal with. Yeah. Did you, um, did you do anything else, uh, besides just changing the schedule? Did you, um, take a vacation? Did you have lots of good conversations? Did you seek a therapist? Like what, what worked for you in that situation? Uh, we took a vacation to Hawaii, which was awesome. <laughs> Never been there before, and I think about it probably once a week now. It lives up to the hype, doesn't it? It really does, yeah. Especially when I found a place I could jump off cliffs into the water. Oh, it was awesome. Swim with turtles, uh, and yeah, it's amazing. Yes, swim with turtles. So I'm going to go back in the next year or so for sure, uh, even though there's other places we want to go. I, I think that may be a once-a-year place from now on. But yeah, took a vacation. Um, tried not to work on that vacation. I had to do a little bit, but I think it was like limited to maybe two hours of total work, which is nice. And then came back, had a lot of conversations with my girlfriend, had conversations with good friends of mine and then scaled back, you know, and scaling back was really helpful. And this is something that I had to come to realize, you know, I was sort of like locked into this mindset that our current editorial calendar, our current frequency of posting, because everything I do is sponsored. Not not blog posts, but every podcast episode and every video I do has a sponsor, which is very awesome. But that means that I can project our revenue pretty accurately 
into the future, at least on the, on the YouTube side. And I can very clearly see how much money I will lose by reducing the number of videos I'm going to put out in a month. So I was thinking that's how we make money. And if I stop doing that, I will make so much less money and I won't be able to pay my people. Um, and my girlfriend was like, if you cut down the amount of time you're spending on videos, you will have time to learn how to make money in other ways. And she was absolutely right. You know, when you're an entrepreneur, that's kind of your job. Like you learn how to generate value. And when I cut down my schedule, I did find myself with not only more hours to work on other things, but also mental, mental freedom, mental clarity. Cause I wasn't constantly stressed out by the next thing coming up in the schedule. So why well, it seems like, um, creators, maybe YouTubers, especially deal with this issue of burnout at some point. Mm -hmm. seems like everybody does in, in some way. Yeah, I think so. Why, why do you think that is? And, and, and well, what is with, it, uh, what do you think it means for longevity of, of these careers? Yeah. With, so with YouTube in general, I guess YouTube specifically content creation in general to a lesser degree, but very much YouTube there's this feeling that the algorithm will leave you behind if you stop the flywheel. You know, if you stop posting as frequently as you do, someone else is going to come up. The algorithm is going to not care about your content anymore. When you come back, it's not going to be the same. That's the fear. So you kind of have to feed the beast. I've gone through enough cycles of dips in view counts, spikes in view counts to know that this is true to some extent, but it's not as true as a lot of people think it is. Um, for example, as I was getting worse and worse into my burnout, my channel started dipping down and the, the view numbers were like worse than they had been in three years. And I was starting to feel like, okay, I'm a has-been now, which only contributes to the burnout because now you're like, I can't stop publishing, but now every single video does worse and worse and worse. So I feel bad about myself. I feel like what I've just created is crap. And I know that eventually my sponsors are not going to tolerate this level of performance at this level of payment. So it's going to eventually have financial repercussions. Uh, but then, you know, I cut down my schedule, got inspired again, started doing work that I was more passionate about. And the views on my channel in the last, I think two months are higher than they've ever been, even though I'm publishing less. So I think one thing is just getting past this idea that the algorithm will leave you behind if you even step off the gas a little bit, because that's not necessarily true. And you can also keep the, your foot on the gas pedal down so hard that you run your channel into the ground just because what you're creating, you're not passionate about. People can tell, people can tell you're not making videos you care about, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, the other thing that I see is content creation is a sport where you are very connected to many, many people. You know, there's so many different social networks. There's mastermind groups. There are thought leaders that you are following. Uh, if you listen to podcasts, you're probably being inundated with 18 different new ideas every single week. Pat Flynn's over here telling you to do a content audit on your blog. You listen to fizzle show and they're like, Hey, you got to get new mics for your podcast to sound better. There's like 18 million different improvements you could make. So you start feeling overwhelmed just by the sheer volume of directions you could go in. So, there's also a mental discipline aspect there in telling yourself that what you're doing now is probably fine and it will probably be the best course of action to just keep going the way you're going for now and maybe make an improvement later on down the line when you've freed up some time. Could you give us uh, a, a little nutshell size view of 
what it's like to make a Thomas Frank video, like from start to finish. Uh, how do you come up with the idea? Do you script things out or is it kind of off the cuff? How do you do the B-roll? Do you have help? Do you have someone on camera, somebody doing editing? What does all that look like? Well, if you imagine a chicken running around with its head cut off, but the head is on the ground and on fire, that's that's a good approximation. <laughs> it is a little bit like that sometimes. Total chaos. Total, yeah. And you know, it's funny. Like I always thought that the bigger YouTubers had their shit together. Uh, a lot of them don't. Some do. I've learned that some do. And, and doing this interview series that I'm doing is teaching me the ones that do and the ones that don't. Uh, but for us, so we will come up with a topic. Uh, I've learned that if I come up with a topic far in advance, it's almost guaranteed that I won't do that topic because mm -hmm. I'll get closer to the deadline and I'll be like, ooh, that's cool. Let's do that one instead. Yeah, or, or you'll, forget the, for this one. you'll forget what made that topic feel so special in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. So I have learned that when I get the topic idea, the best thing for me to do is to sit down and write out as much as I can about it instead of just writing the topic in a list and then going away. It's kind of like adding a book to your to-be-read list on Goodreads. You're like super excited to read it in the bookstore, but then later on you're like, eh, do I actually want to read a history of the shipping container? Eh, I don't know. <laughs> but hey, when you're looking at it in the bookstore, you're like, shipping containers, like so many colors, they're on boats. I want to read that. <laughs> so <laughs> we get an idea. Um, we use Notion now for video project tracking, and I have this whole big template that helps us track not only what's coming out, when it's coming out, who's sponsoring it, but also uh, you can go in and we can add B-roll ideas, we can have the script, we can have checklists for editing, all kinds of stuff. Um, and I can share that with you. I've made it public if you want to put it in like any show notes or something like that. Awesome. So we'll create a we'll create like a project there, get some titles brainstormed, and then someone will write either a script or a bullet list. So it might be me, it might be my business partner, Martin. He's sort of starting to uh, move into writing duties now. And if it is a bullet list video, then I will just film it off a bullet list. If it's a scripted video, sometimes I will do it on a teleprompter or sometimes I'll just have my iPad on a music stand next to me when I'm filming. And then when we get to filming, the first stage is a roll. So I will sit there and I will talk to the camera and I will say my lines as many times as it takes until I get the right line out and then I move on to the next one. So if it's a fully scripted video, it probably takes me about an hour to film that because I find that filming a fully scripted video is very difficult to do. Um, it's almost acting and I usually don't do table reads. So I'm just trying to deliver it correctly the first time. Um, if it's a bullet list video, I'm usually able to go off the cuff a little bit more and usually filming is smoother and takes less time. But either way, once that's done, my editor and takes it. Quick, quick question. Oh, so, so when, when you're reading a scripted video, um, I don't know if, if you're like me, but when I have a fully scripted video, I feel like I need to get every word exactly as it was written for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And so it, it's tough. Um, so you said either you're using a teleprompter or you have your iPad there and, and what are you, yes. you're, are you memorizing like two lines at a time and then trying to deliver them? That's typically what it is. Yeah, just read the next couple of lines. I know a lot of YouTubers who are okay with making it very, very choppy. So they'll do like three words and then a cut, four words and a cut. I don't like that. I like to try to get like maybe two to three sentences out before I cut. So I will do that. Um, I'm very envious of certain people on YouTube who can just speak to the camera nonstop with never never cutting. Like, like uh, Chase. So I, I mean, Chase cuts a lot, but he can just, you know... <laughs> Talk for a half oh, hour. 
Yeah, when, like Chase's video, especially with the bag stuff, I feel like he, there's no script. He's just like, here's yeah. my thoughts on the bag. So that yeah. could be no cuts whatsoever if you wanted it to be. Uh, and yeah, if, if I'm doing a video where I'm like, I'm going to talk about Evernote. I know everything there is to know about Evernote. I'm just going to talk about it. Or like the Notion video. There's not a whole lot of cuts there because I was just sort of going through it. But if I'm doing, you know, here's the science behind the circadian rhythm or something like that. Yeah. That's probably going to be rough because it'll be a research paper. It's not something I know cold. So I'm going to have to go off the script. And um, if you know that there's a section that's going to have a lot of B-roll or something else that you're demonstrating, will you skip that part or do you just deliver all of it to camera in case you need that section? Everything to camera. Um, but if I know that it's going to be covered with B-roll, like absolutely no. And usually this pertains to sponsor segments where I know I'm going to be showing footage of the product. I will let myself look away from the camera. I'll keep my body positioned in the same way so that the microphone it sounds the same. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but I will look at the script and then it's much easier because th now I'm just doing a voiceover narration. Yeah. So, and I've done enough videos where I can make my narrations sound about the same as my YouTube voice. Don't you wish you could just do narrations the whole time? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, a lot of my YouTuber friends only do narration videos and that makes the filming process great because they don't oh, even the have the editing film, process is a nightmare. Every single second must be B-roll. Yeah. That's a lot. So I think having a decent on-camera presence is a really useful hack for making videos because if you don't want to make B-roll for a certain section, at least you have A-roll. And if you're expressive enough, then people are going to watch it and they're not going to care. Yeah. So I don't envy, I envy the people that I know who do narration only videos during the narration process, but during editing, I'm like, oh, you spent 40 hours on that video. Dang. I think I was like, I think the longest edit I've ever done is 25 hours. And most videos are far under that. Most videos are what, like eight hours, 10 hours of editing? Yeah, I would say eight to 10 is probably about the average for editing. Okay. And are you um, doing that really, editing or you have somebody now? I have somebody, uh, his name's Tony. He does great. He does a great job. And we've been working together for probably eight or nine months, I think. Um, and then a few months ago, he actually moved out here to Denver. So awesome. he lives six blocks away from me and he's kind of, he's moving into a more general role where he's also helping with filming. So I will typically film the A roll by myself now, but when we want to go do B roll, he'll often hold the camera if I'm going to be demonstrating something or if I need to be in the shot for a skit or something like that. Um, and it's made the filming process a lot more fun actually. Yeah. And, and a lot less difficult, I'm guessing, because before, uh, if you're doing B-roll all by yourself and you're in the shot, you have to set, do these complicated setups, right? Yep. Uh, a big hack there is buy a camera that has a flip out screen. Mm -hmm. I've done a lot of B-roll on my own and it's definitely nice to be able to just flip the screen out and like look at where you're positioned or if you're like filming a phone or something, you can easily just have the screen position wherever your eyes are and kind of see what you're doing. But yeah, much easier if you have somebody also a lot more expensive though. So yeah, no kidding. Know, yeah. You're most people are not going to be able to afford to move somebody out to a city. And you know, most of my YouTube career is just me doing B-roll on my own or, or like, Hey Anna, can you hold the camera for a second? I needed to shoot myself doing something stupid or I need you to be in a skit. I've, I've co-opted my girlfriend for a lot of things over the past few years. Uh, so the, what we do is I'll give him the raw footage of me talking he will cut it into what we call an A-roll draft. And then we use a tool called frame.io to upload the draft and then make comments. So I will go through and I will, I will, I'll put like B-roll ideas in there 
and we've gotten to the point where we're now sitting together in the same room and brainstorming ideas together. Uh, and then if we see something that needs to be cut or fixed, we will also put a comment for that in there. Um, and then we use Notion. So we have that template and there's a little database within the template where we can actually import the comma separated values file that you can export from Frame.io. Wow. And the nice thing about that is you get the timestamp data. So this is really useful because once we've gathered all the B-roll, my editor can just look at the B-roll database we've created in Notion and see, oh, this piece of B-roll goes at one minute and 30 seconds. So he's no longer skipping around trying to figure out where that piece of B-roll needed to go. It's just, bam, it goes right there. That process works really well if you're the kind of creator who does an A-roll and you cut it and you know how long the video is before you start doing B-roll. Documentary filmmakers, you know, people who are like stitching together vlogs, they don't really have that luxury, but if you're doing educational content, it's often gonna be a talking head cut that you create before you do all your B-roll, which is nice. How long does it take you to shoot or gather all the B-roll? Really depends on the video. So the Notion video that I just put out, there was no B-roll. Um, I just filmed myself from this angle right here, and then I had a screen recording program recording my screen, and my editor just was switching back and forth to make things interesting. So that was a pretty quick edit. Uh, we did one on productivity apps that took a little longer. And then the afternoon slump video we did recently, that was a lot of B-roll because we wanted to go for like a cinematic look and we were shooting on location. We were going outside doing all kinds of stuff. So I think the B-roll gathering for that video took, uh, I wanna say about seven or eight hours total, including the sit down session to figure out what needed to be done. Hmm. Um, how much of your time and energy goes into your YouTube channel versus, uh, you said that you're still involved in podcasting, but not so mm -hmm. much blogging. So I guess your own personal time and then your, your company's time overall, uh, where does that fall? And then also, uh, as a follow-up, um, where do you see the most returns on that time? So my time goes mostly into YouTube at least when it comes to content marketing, because I also work on courses that are coming out and business development and running the business. But in terms of content, 90% of my time goes into YouTube. Uh, as for the podcast, I may do a little bit of research for episodes, but otherwise I show up, I record, and then there are other people who take it from there all the way to publishing. I don't handle it once I'm done recording at all, which is pretty cool. Uh, blogging, I will write the occasional blog post it is only going to happen if I wrote a video script and I did a lot of actual scripting for the video. Cause at that point I'm like, I basically wrote a blog post. I just need to add images and kind of tweak the formatting to make it, you know, better for the blog. But if I'm doing a very bullet list heavy video, I will just assign the blog post to my writer. If we think it needs a blog post, uh, in terms of company time, YouTube is still definitely the top investment because there's all of my time and all of my editor's time. Uh, I would say blogging is probably the second biggest investment because my head writer is making a pretty significant retainer on that. And it's, it's his largest project. He's got, I think one other client at the moment, but for the most part, his hours are going towards the blog. Uh, and he's also doing some biz depth stuff too. Podcast. We don't edit the podcast. I don't know if you're still like making cuts or anything on the fizzle show, but we stopped doing that a long time ago. We were like, uh, I think the catalyst for it actually was going to a video podcast because we were like, well, we're on camera. We don't want to be cutting all the time on camera. So whatever we record, that's what people get. And 
I think that was really useful because before we started doing that, there was always this implicit knowledge that if we screwed up or flubbed, yeah. we could edit it out. But knowing that we couldn't puts the pressure on. And it's like this little combination of public speaking where you have the pressure to do well, but because I have a co-host, it's also a conversation. So I think it kind of creates this sweet spot where the conversation flows really nicely and we never have to cut. And because of that, my girlfriend's the one who edits. She's just got to ingest the footage, cut in the ads, throw a couple of little bumpers on there and upload. That probably takes less than an hour to do, which is pretty nice. Nice. And then in terms of business results, um, your revenue sources, uh, how does that break down? Does YouTube represent like the lion's share? Uh, it does. And I can actually tell you exactly how much YouTube represents because I keep a big old spreadsheet for this. So um, for 2019 so far, the data that I have, and it might be a little skewed because some months have certain income sources reported and others not, but uh, YouTube, or I guess like sponsorships in general, are about half our income. Okay. So it looks like 48%. So that would be YouTube sponsorships and then sponsorships for my podcast as well. And there's a YouTube channel for the podcast, but also just the podcast too. Um, Video sponsorships in particular are 43%. So definitely the largest source of income. Affiliate marketing is like 25%. Uh, Course income right now is 11%. I think that's actually going to go up because August and September, we had some pretty big pushes for Skillshare. So that should probably go up. And then YouTube AdSense is 10%. And the final 1.25% is book sales. Thinking back on the way that you've built your business and um, having to learn all of these different mediums and you know become proficient in each one, is there something that you would have done differently um, in terms of like when you started each of them, podcasting versus blogging versus YouTube, or how much time you spent on them, or uh, were there things that you spent a bunch of time on that didn't end up being worth it? What would you change about the last eight or nine years? That is a tough question. Uh, I mean... I think the easy answer is earlier on everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if I would have gotten into YouTube earlier, that would have been great. But, you know, I'm pretty happy with how things have turned out. Um, the big one that I always say, and I think this is the thing that's helpful for people who are actually getting into it, is start building relationships sooner. And this is something that I remember thinking I wish I had done earlier back when I was just first getting into my full-time income as a blogger. Cause now, you know, I've got a lot of great relationships, but, um, I remember like I was looking back at those catalyst moments, the life hacker thing, the viral video, all those things. A lot of those had to do with having good relationships and just, you know, synergies coming out of them. So if somebody's getting into YouTube or blogging or podcasting, whatever it is, I think it makes sense to go to the conferences to maybe start a podcast interviewing people, uh, you know, follow your people that you admire on Twitter, be interacting with them. Just, you know, try to build organic relationships as soon as you can, because a lot of good things come from those. Thomas Frank, thank you so much for being here today. Absolutely. Thank you. You can find more from Thomas over at collegeinfogeek.com. You can also find him on the College Info Geek podcast or at youtube.com slash Thomas Frank. As always, you'll find links to everything that we talked about today over at fizzleshow.co. I'm Corbett Barr, and until next time, thanks for being here.